Welcome to Recogs, the show where we learn how the world's best business operators build consumer brands from sourcing to selling, brought to you by Manufactured. This is a replay of a live webinar we did on February 15th, 2024, and we're chatting about all things beauty and personal care. It's titled, How to Scale Up and Stand Out in Beauty and Personal Care. Our panelists are three beauty and personal care experts. We have Odile Rojul, who is the founder of Fab Co-Creation Studio, Christina Nunez, who is the co-founder of True Beauty Ventures, and Vanessa Ting, the founder of CPG Growth. Thank you down to the webinar. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for uh, joining today for a webinar, How to Scale Up and Stand Out in Beauty and Personal Care. I'm your MC, Mike. I'm the community manager here at Manufactured.com. Uh, just to let you know, just to give you a little background on Manufactured and what Manufactured does, um, we're an inventory success pl uh, platform for all consumer brands of, of all different types. Um, what is an inventory success platform? Our goal is to help brands uh, extend their run runway by offering inventory financing and or lowering their cogs by digging in, digging into their supply chain and seeing how we can help improve their margins with either countersourcing, um, looking into our manufacturing network of 700 um, manufacturers that we partner with. Um, if you have either need when it comes to um, inventory financing or uh, or on the margin side of things, um, uh, trying to lower your cogs, happy, happy to chat. Um, our panelists today, um, we have um, Odile, we have Vanessa, and we have Christina. I am so, so, so excited for this one. Um, uh, so, um, Odile, uh, let me start with you. Tell us a bit about Fab Co-Creation Studio and, and, and a little bit about your background. Yes, uh, so I'm French. You will see my accent. Uh, living in uh, Los Angeles, uh, where I met you, uh, Mike. Um, so um, I created... Uh, Five years ago, Fab Community, just thinking mentorship is great, but it's even better when VCs and founders meet each other and share their learnings. And three years ago, I founded a Fab Venture Seed Stage in consumer tech, especially in fashion and beauty, like Fab, a fabulous fabricate. Uh, we do a check size of 250 to 1 million. We're in fund two. And uh, I'm a co-investor with uh, my dear uh, Christina that I saw last month in Miami uh, in K18 here. We can talk about that. Uh, very excited by the first exit with a merger acquisition and, and Unilever acquiring them. And that's pretty much an operating uh, profile, uh, ex-CEO of, of Lancôme. So I add skills to the table. Yeah, that's um, so exciting. And uh, thank you so much, um, Odile. It's been so great. Um, Odile is like the best um, event organizer um, I've come across. And she is just terrific with all our events. And I'm so grateful that she invites me to them. I don't even know how or why I get the invite, but every You're time I always have such a blast. <laughs> now the rest of us want to invite Lit to be included on the list. <laughs> so much, so much fun. So much fun. Um, and um, uh, Vanessa, um, if we can uh, hear a bit about your background and with uh, uh, CPG Growth Partners. Yes, thank you. Um, well, CPG Growth Partners is me. I am a solo consultant, but I operate as a fractional chief marketing officer for food, beauty, and personal care startups, all in the wellness and better for you space. Uh, my entire career has been in CPG and retail. Probably most relevant to many of the, the folks listening in today is I used to be a retail buyer for Target. Uh, but beyond that, I've also been a uh, marketer and uh, worked in innovation for Neutrogena, as well as a bunch of um, startup beauty and wellness brands and food brands as well. 
Amazing. Amazing. We're so, so delighted to have you here. And yes, I mean, we're really, I mean, I'm really excited to talk about retail buying and kind of the, um, from that, from that retailer's perspective, which I think, um, hopefully will be really helpful for brands. I mean, I'm just really curious when I have a brand myself, but I'm super, super curious about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, Vanessa for, uh, for being here. Uh, Christina, um, I know we've done a, a, a podcast episode together, but tell us, tell us about, you and uh, True Beauty Ventures. Yes, thank you so much for having me, Mike. Really excited to talk to both Adil and Vanessa. I am Christina Nunez, the co-founder of True Beauty Ventures. We are a, as in our name, with beauty in our name, we are a beauty and wellness-focused emerging growth fund. We typically invest anywhere from $1 to $5 million as the first check uh, into emerging growth brands in this sector. So obviously, we're incredibly sector-specialized, and that's really born out of my experience and my co-founder Rich Gerson's experience in beauty, both as as investors and as operators. Uh, We have 16, I should now say 15 portfolio companies because as Odile mentioned, we did exit K18, which is our our first exit. Uh, We're super excited about that. Um, We have two funds. uh, So we're deploying out of fund two right now, but we have wonderful brands. Many of them you can see behind me on my beauty uh, shelfie over here, but they span all the categories within beauty, hair care, skin care, color, you know, color cosmetics, fragrance, et cetera, and then wellness as well. Um, so very much excited for this conversation and thanks again for having me. No, thank you so much. And yeah, I mean, the K-18 um, exit, that's um, when I saw that, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited for for, for both you, uh, Christina, and also for you, um, Odile. So um, yeah, that's just incredible, um, in- incredible result. That's that's awesome. And also heading to uh, Unilever. Oh, okay. Well, so what, well, we can start with K eighteen if you like. Um, now that now that K eighteen, um, we have this one uh, question right here. Now that uh, K eighteen is exited, are you able to reveal some of the reasons why behind why uh, reasoning behind why you invested originally? Um, maybe we'll start with um, o- Odile for this one. Um, first and foremost, the founders, <laughs> because in seed stage, uh, that matters. So Brita Cox and uh, Savin Saib are serial entrepreneurs. Uh, they're very much obsessed by science. So we saw in the past a lot of brands with cool Instagram and social media and cool site. I think they were very obsessed by what's behind uh, the products and especially their uh, their masks for the hair when uh, you, are, you have colored hair is pretty amazing. I think you, you can be obsessed with it after and it's worth the price. So um, I invested for them and for the science. And then what came was the beauty influencers and they did great retail partnership. They became global very quickly. I'm, I'm sure Christina will come back to that. But um, science base is important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, for me, it was really the people, the product and the right people, the right product in the right time. Those kind, those factors, and Odile hit the nail on the head when it came comes to product. It was incredibly differentiated, unique, groundbreaking technology that had a very demonstrable effect when people used the product. Simple to use, and it delivered. So that was, you know, a major driving force behind how quickly uh, people adopted and and the product. Um, and then, you know, Odile spoke about the founders, incredible founders. But what was even more impressive for us is over a very short period of time, they really expanded their team and brought in rock star executives that executed flawlessly. 
And so those people were so crucial to the success of the brand. And then the right time, this was right, you know, around the time when, you know, science was picking up and you've seen the infiltration of kind of the science and clinical results being a focus for the consumer within skincare, but it was not as it wasn't picking up as much in hair care yet. You had some examples. Obviously, you had Olaplex. Uh, you had Living Proof before that. So you started to see that happening in hair care. But when we invested, it was right at that time where hair care was ready for kind of the science revolution. And so it was really good timing for us to invest. And obviously, the outcome was, was an amazing outcome for all involved. And that also requires a little bit of luck. Yeah, no, that's um, that's amazing. Um, I I wish it was disclosed in terms of the price, but I know that that's that's not disclosed. But um, but that's that that's incredible. Congratulations to you both for that. Um, you know, this kind of leads me into actually like like my first question. Um, that I that I was thinking about. When we think about you know beauty brands, we of course I think maybe primarily first think about you know the brand itself and the marketing and you know oh like this is you know incredible, but. What about like the product? What about product? And how do you think about product differentiation within like various categories within beauty and personal care? It also just seems too like a lot of the founders that maybe get funded or or, or kind of or, or or some of the companies that are kind of meeting up, they maybe have like a, a bit of a science background. K eighteen maybe is like one example of that as well. Um, how do you think Vanessa, when it comes to product differentiation, where you're kind of um, working with and advising and consulting with these with some of these brands? Um, what to you is kind of truly innovative on the product side versus, um, okay, this is like a great kind of, uh, marketing more, um, great kind of marketing story, but maybe, maybe the product actually, um, isn't quite that, that original or, or differentiated. Okay. I love this question because there is unfortunately a sea of sameness with products and beauty. I mean, you've got like so many, especially emerging brands that focus on making a pretty brand or a pretty package. And they think that's enough differentiation. And then when it comes down to product, they either miss the fundamentals of what a good product should be. And that also includes product differentiation. I mean, I would agree with Odile and Christina, um, science and technology plays a, a, a really important part. And of course there are varying degrees of science and technology, right? There's like the truly proprietary technology that's taken tons of R&D like K18 and Olaplex probably have. Um, I assume they have. Um, and then of course, um, you know, there is more um, of the uh, ingredient um, differentiation, you know, just based on maybe just the the standard kind of you know, efficacy of those ingredients that have been proven in, in other clinicals. And so regardless, there should be like a really strong reason to believe for why your product delivers a benefit and it has to be demonstrable and it has to be credible. Marketing, I mean, it just, I, I you know, there, again, there's varying degrees of, of how you kind of prove that stuff, but at the end of the day, like you need to deliver a product that meets a consumer's need in a new way. And it has to be a need that's important to consumers. Don't make up needs, but it has to truly be an unmet need that is a key purchase driver. Um, and it has to, you know, be delivered in a different way than than others have. So do you, do you think that in order to be successful um, as a brand that you actually need some type of like product um, differentiation? Or do you think that you can still grow a large brand? We, we we have this question here from Gemma, for example, about, you know, influencer founded brands, but not which not to say an influencer founded brand couldn't also have product differentiation, but they maybe, maybe they have um, a, um, uh, they, they have an unfair advantage when it comes to distribution, right. Um, that, that, that of course you can kind of tap into, but, um, just in terms of like product differentiation, does there need to be something, something there in order to be successful? 
Yeah. So there's a few things in, in your question. I mean, founder led brands, that's, that's brand differentiation. Most of the time they should also have good product differentiation as well, okay. but sometimes product differentiation can also be more than just science or technology or ingredients. It can also be you know, first to market in a, with a certain point of view. I'll use maybe Glow Recipe as an example of this. Um, maybe the ingredients they used were not novel, niacinamide, hyaluronic acid, retinol, but the way in which they served it up was very unique. It was fruit forward. It was all about glowing skin. Um, it was very luscious, you know, kind of um, experiential formulations. And that package of that product differentiation was kind of first to market or they were the among the first to market. And that's what created their product differentiation. Sure, there have been fast followers since, but you know, I think being among the first to mind share um, on a certain point of view uh, for product differentiation is and product positioning is is is, is important. Odile, how I'd do you think about a... this? What oh sorry, Christina, go for it. Go, go no, for it. I, I just I would love to add to what um Vanessa said. And I love that you mentioned Glow Recipe because People, you know, you're when you're looking for product differentiation, you know, I get, I don't know how many pitch decks per week and everybody's always trying to pinpoint, oh, this is the white space. We're here and everybody else is over here and we're on our own because they, they think you have to demonstrate that there's a wide open playing field and you're the only one playing in it. That could be important because, you know, it could very well be an unmet need that nobody has addressed and there's a, a an addressable market for it. But for me, it's also about how are you creating consumer product obsession? And that obsession can come from the product itself with the ingredients and the efficacy and the results, a la K18. But it can also come from what, and, and Vanessa mentioned Glow Recipe, the uniqueness of the experience, everything from the branding to the packaging to the sensorial nature of you know the formulas to the way that they connect with their community is so different, so authentic, and it's it causes people to become true you know loyalists and to become obsessed with the product. And that branding magic, you know, is not necessarily anchored to the product differentiation. Um, although they might've been one of the first to kind of put fruit forward in their ingredients. There are plenty of other brands that have fruits in their ingredients and that use scientific ingredients as well, but nobody does it in the way that Glow Recipe does. Uh, I totally agree with, with what Christina, Christina and uh, Vanessa have said. I will just add something on the community that you mentioned, Christina, is that you need a product that normally in blind test is better that, than a benchmark. Uh, exactly like you said, Christina, when founders say, oh, I, I can't compare myself to anyone because they're here, I'm here, that's not a good sign. So basically, normally your product is better than the others. And the second thing is powered by all experts. Kaitin, for instance, we didn't mention it, but it was the hairstylist. They were doing a huge roadshow to convince the saloon and, and the hairstylist. It can be a dermatologist. It can be estheticians. It can be people that know very much the curly hair, whether, but very good at what they do. And I've got the feeling that the differentiation comes by the product and the community and, and, and the power by the experts. Do you, to, to, to that point, Odile, do you think that, like, it seems like there's a bit of a, maybe a shift? Um, uh, well, I'll say a, a shift um, in that in that a lot of um, in that, you know, some of the brands that are coming up, it seems like science back, for example, has become like a pretty um, interesting kind of trend that um, that has appeared um, over the past few years. And that 
um, it seems like at least some of the brands that I've been around, they want to say like, you know, or, or not even want to say they, they, they have experience either from, um, uh, if, uh, from that background themselves, or they have a co-founder or advisor that kind of has that experience. Um, are you, are you seeing that? Like, these are the type of brands that right now that they, that, that can actually kind of display that, um, that are the yes. ones that are actually yes, like, growing no, or. Okay. I'm sure you're fully aware of the greenwashing or clean beauty greenwashing uh, a few years ago. I think science-based, it's the same. It's exactly what we try to, to convince uh, the, the attendees is the reason, the proof that it works, the reason to believe you. Because if there is an exit one day, normally it should be your corporations, whether Shiseido, Loader, L'Oreal, Procter, whoever, that will purchase the brand for the data and the knowledge of the customers, but also with great products. If the products are not delivering and the science behind is not that really existing, that's not exactly what, excite, what is exciting for corporations. I'm pretty sure, Katie, they did their due diligence on the bioscience part and the biotech part for real, in fact. Yeah, I, yeah that's I, a great point. Oh, sorry. No, it. I, just to add, I, I fully, I fully agree with Odile. I mean, there tends to be these, these trends and, you know, movements and investors can kind of fall, fall into this herd mentality for a while it was clean beauty. Now everything's about science and aesthetic treatments and all of that stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, the product does has, have to speak for itself and has to be efficacious. And sometimes brands will use the science to try to demonstrate that. But you can't forget that you're also building a brand. You're also building something that people you know, can connect to that can stand the test of time, more so than just the scientific results. And that does take a lot more effort than just the technology and R&D that takes having, you know, the right people around, right, you know, executives on the team that know how to brand build, that can, you know, access community across multiple channels, that know how to present the brand in a way that resonates with consumers. In the case of K18, they took really difficult to understand science and consumerized it in a way that is digestible so that people can really understand what's going on and they would fall in love with all the other brand attributes in addition to the science. That's really hard to do. And I do think, you know, strategics value the brand building part of it as much as they value the science. And there's plenty of examples of brands that have traded, you know, for very high valuations that weren't about the science necessarily. You have, you know, Aesop was obviously a big deal that happened, you know, not too long ago. Most recently, um, you have DS and Durga on the fragrance side. Like some of these brands, these brands have built something very special and magical um, with, you know, using the, the broader brand platform and, and Halo to capture consumers in a different way outside of just the product. Yeah, I think that those are um, those are really great points. I mean, th th I think also you, in some ways, have to be careful about the science too, like in your marketing and 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 in your positioning and not kind of misleading consumers. I mean, I was talking to, um, I was talking to an uh, investment banker the other day, for example, and she said that how one strategic, they literally of all the brands that they are kind of coming up and emerging, they literally have like a file. They all they, they have like a file of like the last five years of all of the marketing campaigns and making sure. And if like, if any of their marketing campaigns are like misleading or it's not actually doing what the product says it does, like they're out. They're not, they're not. Yeah, even I know who that you. strategic is and it's true. Yeah. V Vanessa, um, I love listening to your podcast episodes. And one of the things that I thought was, um, was a really kind of, um, 
a really interesting thing that I'd love to like dive into is obviously, you know, it gets said all the time. You have to know your, your customers, you have to know your audience, you have to know your, your demographics, but, but founders don't really, uh, but you said that founders don't really understand, or maybe that, that don't dive into the data as much in terms of the actual psychographics of, of their customer. Can you talk a little bit about what psychographics actually, you know, are, and maybe also at what level when it comes to, you know, stage, like, Maybe if you have like a certain amount of sales, we can actually start diving into that data where it actually maybe you can actually learn, um, learn and kind of create like an actual strategy around it. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'll start by saying that, you know, it's a misnomer that data and consumer insights cost money. Uh, sure, they do. But there are so many scrappy ways in which to do it. Like I don't know if it's a foil or like some some like way of, you know, people trying to avoid doing the hard work. But, um, you know, you can stand in stores and talk to consumers. You can talk to friends and family. I mean, there's so many ways in which to get real, true consumer insights. And those insights in standing around talking to people oftentimes um, gives you insight into their psychographics. So for anyone who doesn't know what psychographics are, this is, you know, going beyond just the demographics of your target consumer. It's going beyond, you know, gender, age, and education and income. It is understanding their attitudes, their behaviors, their lifestyle, what motivates them, their pain points. It's really understanding that richness, almost to the point that you could envision who this person is. You know, we all have someone in our life that kind of like can represent a certain target audience out there. And so being able to paint that picture in your head, you know, basically a persona is really helpful in, um, in everything you do, you know, when building a, a, a startup and, and, you know, and, and, and growing it, everything from product development to, to marketing and communications to, um, you know, the, the list goes on, but, but yeah, that is what I generally mean by, by psychographics and why it's important. I'll also note that, and I, and I'm curious what Odile and Christina have seen. I get so many early stage investor decks where they just show who the, the demographic is. And there's like such a disconnect between the solution that they're offering and their brand positioning and the target consumer, mostly because they're only just focused on demographics or maybe at best, Gen Z, and they kind of leave it at that, you know, so there's richness that I think in, in, in figuring this out that actually lends to a much more uh, um, differentiated brand, uh, a brand with a lot of, you know, meat and attributes and intention, like there's just so much more richness to that brand that gives you a bigger platform for a, you know, a long term viable, you know, big brand. Yeah, um, well, let's also hear, hear go for our <laughs> Odile. Yeah, um, I would say again, some some of the global brands of the big corporations are blind. So coming back to what you said, Vanessa, they want some information and insights. And um, most of the time it's linked to the community and audience. For example, I just give the example, I invested in Good Light, Good Light World. They're about gender fluidity and gender inclusivity. I say to them, did you track that that figure? Because if you're target, you don't know how to answer it's great to have a storytelling, but if it's only male purchasing you or women and not people defining defining themselves beyond binary, that doesn't work. So they did it. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people, including Ulta, that have them now in stores are excited by understanding better how they can be allies. Uh, same for Bubble. She was not just about Gen Z and teen skincare and acne. She was investing in platforms like Geneva and talking about mental health for teens during the COVID 
And she was part of a bigger story than that. And that comes back to what Vanessa is, is explaining about the interest and not just location, revenues, age, which is not as much as exciting for who one day will be super excited to have the community and the customers. The data again. No, th no, that's that's um, um, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Hey, um, Mike, I realize I didn't answer the second part of your question, which is like, you know, the expense or, or at what point? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, again, like it's, it could be really cheap, so you don't have to spend much money on it. But like, at honestly, at every at every um, at every stage of growth, you should be you should be up leveling, you know, your investment in research. Again, it could just be an investment in time when you're early on. But, you know, as you start um growing, you know, larger and larger, it's helpful to know, you know, awareness and usage and tracking and, um, you know, routinely doing concept tests to validate product ideas before you spend the money to, you know, to, to, to create them. So, you know, yes, it can, the cost can start to scale, but like you can get, you can get to a $20 million business doing really just knit, like, you know, uh, guerrilla style consumer insights and, and research work. Yeah, I'll just add two things. I love that. I love the scrappiness. You said just go talk to people in store. We have founders who spend so much time in store doing that exact same thing. And it's amazing what you can pick up. Um, but so two things I often see, one is where you have a brand who's positioning and product. There's a very strong dissonance between their positioning and their product and their target consumer. It's just a miss. And maybe they just got sales because, you know, it, it happened, but at the end of the day, it doesn't jive with what they're selling with that target consumer. Then sometimes I see brands that try to be for everyone and it's really challenging. You know, you can't be for everyone. Um, there are specific, whether it's demographics or psychographics, people that will gravitate towards your brand because you're solving a specific need, um, a need that they have. And it's, it's just hard to try to go after every single demographic and say, speak to everybody at the same time for all their needs. It just, it doesn't work out that way. So I see that happening a lot. So spending time, especially when your brand is still small to make sure that you have that right product market fit and that, you know, your positioning, your branding, your storytelling, all of that makes sense with that, North star of your consumer, um, it's so critical to get that right first. Because then, you know, when you go to a retailer, you have to pitch to that retailer, oh, here's who I'm going to bring into your stores that might be a net new customer to your store. Um, and I'm not going to be cannibalizing with other people, you know, because I have this very, you know, clear uh, target demo that I'm going to be, you know, bringing to you. It's always a great thing to tell a retailer if, if you know that information. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well yeah, those are those are all great points. I mean, thinking about retail, I know it's you know never um, quite up to the brand. Of course, it's kind of like uh, the retailer is obviously it's discretion in terms of like I mean, obviously the brand has to accept, but like you know making offers for for PO and to have you in store. Um, uh, the retailer have you know more leverage there because 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 brands are kind of chasing me in, in retailers. But thinking about this question about <clears throat> excuse me demographics, psychographics. You're you're a you're a DTC brand and um. Uh, you want to go into wholesale. You, you, first of all, like when, when is, when do you think like, like the timing is right to even think about, about wholesale? But secondly, how, how do you think about the different, um, different wholesalers? Like, like, a, like a Sephora, like a Target, for example, um, how, how should you be thinking about different retailers differently? And in terms of where, um, is a good starting point for your brand based off of, 
you know, the, the kind of, um, demographics that you're currently serving or, or your type of customer. Yeah. Maybe, could, so, maybe, Vanessa, I'll start with you because oh, sorry, you, just you, to jump you, in. I'm like, it, no, 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 perfect, perfect, perfect. <laughs> I love this question because mostly like, you know, when I was a buyer, I was constantly frustrated by like the misalignment of channel strategy and just like mm-hmm. the confusion that in, invariably vendors would have when they would be presenting to me. There, there is a right order to this. Maybe I'm old school. I mean, I've been in this industry for I don't know, 25 years, so maybe I'm old school, but you know, there is a right way in which to grow your distribution, um, even if you are DTC first. Um, if you think about a trend curve, right, you know, a typical bell curve, and you th- if you think about all the different retailers, beauty retailers that exist, you can plot them along this trend curve. This trend curve basically represents how these retailers bring in early adoption. You know, the, the retailers that are further along in the trend curve are typically a little risk averse, you know, target, um, a little bit risk averse, and will want to see proven traction beforehand. And, and, and generally, that's the role of early adopter retailers as well. Um, early adopters might be Credo, for example. Um, in addition to that, that trend curve sometimes also kind of aligns with just like the, the kind of the premium, you know, mastige, mass, mass kind of way you plot retailers. And you also kind of want to launch that way too, right? You kind of want to start high and work your way down. Part of that is to avoid channel conflict, just confusing consumers, but also aligning with your consumer. Again, like you can you can also map every brand to where they fall along this trend curve as well. So it's it's a lot of curves, a lot of bell curves, but in short, like, you know, this is a very simplistic way of thinking about it, but I think it's an easy way to think about it. Like you kind of want to, you know, launch, you know, and, and grow your distribution kind of according to that model, because it, it kind of aligns with consumer adoption, it aligns with the risk aversion or risk tolerance of retailers, and it allows you to build sales traction, um, you know, learn and um, and adjust and and in before you scale, right? Nail it before you scale it. Um, so that's that. Those are my thoughts. And of course, you know, keen to hear Odile and Christina, because you guys have seen probably far more than I have in this realm. I could I could jump in. I mean, to answer a part of your question too, I think you're, you said, you know, when do you know you're ready for retail um and how how you approach it I, I love the idea of the of the curves and we have seen multiple different paths to get to retail we have seen a brand's launch be at retail that's very unique that doesn't happen very often and one one brand in our portfolio that that's how they launch they launch an all-door um exclusive North America with Sephora right out the gate. Now, this was the second time beauty founder. This is Wendy Zomner, who founded Urban Decay. And this was her uh, second brand now uh, called Cali Ray. And that's how she launched. But not everyone, that's not, doesn't work for everyone, clearly. What I would say is, you know, you're ready to go into retail when you've nailed the part around the product positioning and the, you know, product market fit, the way we talked about a few minutes ago, where you actually know you have the right product for the right audience and you have been able to demonstrate momentum that gets a retailer like Sephora and Ulta excited. Oftentimes they'll be inbounding you if they notice that you have that momentum and traction. They're not inbounding you. I would say demonstrate that before you reach out. Um, You mentioned uh, Vanessa uh, 
a brand retailer like Credo, that's a great brand building partner for a small indie brand to launch before they would take their brand potentially to a Sephora or an Ulta. And they would definitely work out some of those kinks, um, you, you know, before you launch a retailer that are crucial to, to get out before you launch a massive anchor partner like a Sephora or an Ulta. But ultimately, you have to have that momentum leading into a launch. Because what I think people misinterpret is that launching at Sephora or Ulta is success. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. It's launching is, is success in that you beat out a lot of people to get there because it's fiercely competitive, but then to scale is truly success. And then to scale at that point means you have to have the right people. You have to have the right capital and funding potentially, you know, that might be the time you go out and you raise money because you're launching a big retailer and you need that, the resources behind you to meet the demands of Sephora or Ulta because it's very expensive. Um, and you as the brand have to create that demand. The retailer is not going to do it for you. They're going to give you great placement and support, but ultimately it comes down to the brand. Totally agree. So I will just add to, in short, because a lot have, have been said, um, it's so costly to be at a big retailer. Never forget it. It's like, first, you share the product margin. Second, you don't have the data. You're blind. And you will be blind if one day you've got an exit on that part of your business. And third, they will ask you a lot of things, affordable SKUs, bundles, uh, spending uh, in sampling, beauty associates, training, trade marketing. So the more you begin by what I would call niche or small retailers, it can be Goop, Violet Gray, The Detox Market, Credo that has been mentioned, Certain Lune, I'm a big fan because I'm an investor, but different people that help you first to be sure that you can ship and you learn how to work with them. And at the same time, continuing to build your other leg, which is your online business, where you've got the data and the insights that we were mentioning before. Because if you've got too many people as retailers, and you've got more than 70%, as I've seen that in some decks with the retailer and wholesales, why would a corporation purchase your brand one day? <laughs> I'm not sure, because they need the insights again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And simply put, like, you know, as a buyer, I'm looking at brands that have established some amount of brand awareness, right? Again, depending on what type of real retail you're buying for, you have different, again, kind of hurdles for, for brand awareness, but that's really important. Brand awareness is so hard to achieve. So there needs to have been some, some concerted effort to build that brand awareness in advance, or you have a lot of money in which to build that awareness very quickly, which is, you know, another approach as well. But you, in addition to that brand awareness, you just, you also want to be sure that those brands have already consumer demand. So whether they have already built a community um, and, and can show that there is a nice life cycle of, you know, customers, they come back, you know, velocities are good. Um, you know, those are all indicators of a readiness for a retailer to bring a brand in. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, I mean, those are all, you know, excellent points. I think that, you know, when you see brands maybe launch nationally, for example, out of the gate, it's um, like, it, it's amazing in the press and, and obviously like it, like it's incredible for the brand, but in terms of like, what that means in terms of work-wise, you have to make sure that all your products are being merchandised correctly, right? A across those stores and actually pay attention to it because that's only the beginning. Getting in the store is like is like the first step. You want to make sure that the, that the retailer is gonna is gonna keep buying and buying and buying and and, and, and getting and wanting more of your uh, product in store. And so um, and so also kind of like knowing that. Um, not to say there's been a lot of successful brands that have done it that way, but just knowing that it's also work 
um uh from uh from that side of it it does not mean that you're done once you get that like first po it's actually only the beginning yeah yeah and christina made it's about the sell in it's all about the sell through exactly and another point christina that you made that was really good worth mentioning again is is supply chain and inventory control you got to be able to get that stuff to to stores because you can have a great selling product but if you're not physically in stores because you can't execute your supply chain i'm not interested as a retailer you know if you're on if you're on DTC only and you happen to miss a product launch, oh shoot, we missed it. Okay. Well, when you're in store, you you'll have an empty you'll have an empty shelf there. You can't do that and uh you have to have the processes, the procedures, the people and oftentimes small brands love investing in the front end cuz it's exciting and they forget about the back end that needs to be able to support when you have this massive opportunity like launching in retail. When that opportunity comes, it sucks if you're not ready for it. You know, because you who knows when you'll be able to get that again. So you always want to think about being prepared and, and buttoned up and having your house in order um, whenever you're starting retail conversations. Yeah, hundred percent. You have to have you have to kind of be prepared on the supply chain side and uh, manufacturing side when it comes to actually doing a retail launch. Which, which uh, quick plug, manufacturer could be helpful for you all. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, from that standpoint, if if, if you are a brand, uh, but um. Serve that one up nicely. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that, Christina. Um, uh, so what type of let's say you're you're into um uh, smaller stores or like a few set of stores. Um, like we have this one question around um a credo. Um, once you kind of start, if you start off that way and going into a few select stores, what type of data would you be looking to tweak your positioning? Um, once you launch a credo before kind of. Um, going into a Sephora, what what are you kind of looking out for that really could like help your brand that you're kind of trying to pay uh, pay attention to in in terms of making tweaks? Well, I th- I um, think the most obvious, especially if you are long, you know, if you have her in a smaller retail like Credo, it's probably the first time you're getting sell through data. So it's the first time you're being, you know, reported at in a retail environment, what your sell through is per SKU and, you know, tracking that on a monthly basis, tracking it year over year. If you already have a year's worth of information to know what's working, what's not working. Did I think a hero that I, you know, put all my marketing behind because I thought it was a hero. Is that actually my hero? Or is it this standout product that all of a sudden everybody's gravitating towards because, you know, it, it actually works perfectly for this consumer uh, need that, or this consumer that, you know, shops credo. And you just start to learn from that information where you can start to refine, okay, wow, I may have something interesting here or shoot this hero. I, as I launched newness, only the newness sells and my hero sales start to decline in store because I'm not always supporting those heroes in addition to my newness. That's a trap that, you know, I think small brands could fall into at times because guess what? The retailer always wants newness. They, you know, they would, they want that. They, and, and they're not taking the inventory risk, right? They're, you know, they just want that new thing that could potentially, you know, drive new purchases. And it's up to the brand to recognize, you know, what's the right cadence for newness versus supporting their existing SKUs and how to not proliferate their assortment. So there's a lot of learnings from the sell-through data that if this is your first time in retail, you're you're going to be able to see. Um, and then if you're on their .com as well, it'll be interesting to see the differences between in-store and online what sells, what doesn't. Obviously it could be based on the footprint of the retail stores, but there's there's a lot of good insights. I mean, we love sell through data. We spend a lot of time with our brands on it. So I'll let others chime in. 
Yeah, I have nothing really to add other than to, yes, like sell through data is gold. Like that is that is your currency for figuring out how to optimize things and where to even begin analyzing, you know, where the optim optimizations need to happen. So 100%. I would just add to that maybe um, what are your top SKUs, iconic products, your pillars year after year, even if you've got new products, extensions, that will be the brand in a way. Um, and most of the time when I meet founders, there's so much in the developments uh, of their products and they're so proud of their new products, they forget why people love them. Kaitin, it was the mask, even if they had shampoo and great other products, uh, and they took care of the pillars, uh, iconic products, ancestral too. <laughs> Yeah, and making sure that on your you know hero products that you're never sold out of them, um, and uh, as you're kind of expanding your um, your different SKUs. I mean, think about SKU assortment. When does it actually even make sense to um, to enter potentially like a new category, um, launch new SKUs? Um, how many also SKUs? I know I'm asking like a couple of questions each time I'm on the mic, but um, how how many SKUs also does it make sense to even launch at um, at, at at retail, uh, I, I, I answer. Go <laughs> so for it. I, I think the the rule is the rule of twenty percent, eighty percent. Twenty percent of your SKUs are doing eighty percent of revenues. Forget mm -hmm. the other ones, except for the shelves and the merchandising. But you need to be obsessed by your top SKUs. Productivity is everything. That's what a retailer is going to want to see. They're going to want to see velocity. So anything that you put on the shelf has to work hard for you. So to Odile's point, you may have 10 SKUs, but the reality is a handful of them drive the majority of your revenue. And that those are the ones where it makes sense to put on shelf. Listen, if if a retailer wants to launch you on two shelves and you know you have all the inventory, like th that's a great opportunity. But at the same time, my goodness, as a small brand, the amount of support that you have to put to each one of those SKUs, it's so much. You don't want to bite off more than you can chew. You really want to take this in a way where you show the retailer that you could really drive revenue and have productivity before you expand deeper and deeper. And to answer your question around the product assortment and the adjacent categories, I worry when a small brand goes into adjacencies too quickly because you're still defining what you're known for. Are you a skincare brand? Are you a personal care brand, a hair care brand? And I know these days people are trying to launch one SKU and a really interesting fast growing category because they might catch, they want to catch a wave of momentum, but you have to remember that as a small brand, you still need to earn the permission to play in those categories. And you're going to be going up against behemoths who have an entire line that's focused on that. So I, I'm a little bit hesitant to encourage it too quickly because again, the focus is productivity of your assortment. So. Yeah, go deep before you go broad, productivity. Um, and yes, retailers are always going to be pressing for innovation, especially in beauty, especially in color cosmetics, right? They're always asking for innovation. So, you know, you have to really be judicious about rationalizing your product portfolio. Retailers are going to do it for you if you don't, but like make sure you're thinking about what to sunset on your, your, yourself before um, before adding new SKUs. I mean, if anything, just for just for your capital efficiency. I see a lot of brands too, where it's like that launch it and leave it strategy. And it, it's just, it's a waste. It's very capital intensive to launch a product. Like if you actually think about it from the, um, the concept to market, that's 
years worth of effort to launch something and distraction for your team to be launching, having too many launches per year. And it's very capital intensive if you're going to be buying, you know, inventory, buying stock to support the launch. And then you have to invest in marketing because you want to make sure that that sells through. And it just, you know, I would say for a small brand, typically, I know it's going to vary by category, but more than two major launches a year is a lot. Yeah. I mean, these are all, in my opinion. You, yeah, those are all like, Great, um, great points. I remember, like, um, during one of my my webinars, um, I I was I, I had on an investor that he was saying how like one of his brands launched a target, you know, um, nationwide, and you know, it was a big deal, and you know, it was great, but they didn't do anything. They didn't. They launched and they and they just sat on it. And he's like, and he was kind of venting a little bit on on it. Didn't name the brand, but um, but he was kind of venting on it. He's like, they did like they just thought it would just like sell itself, and they weren't like you know all these kind of um, areas about product launches and what have you. Like they 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 just didn't focus on it, sat on it, and then you know um I don't think I don't think they were, they're they're out of target at that point, but I don't think it was going kind of like too well um uh too well at that point in time. Hopefully things picked up, but um. Uh, but yeah, no, I think, I think these are all, um, these are all great questions. And I also think too, just in terms of like, you know, attention, um, and people's attention, like it's so hard to become known for one thing, right? It's so hard to just become, so if you want to launch like a, like, like a variety of products and go in different categories, like it's really admirable. Um, I also just think that, you know, become known for, for one thing, um, uh, like K18, it seems like it was a hair mask, right? So like become known for one thing. It's so hard to even become known for one thing. So really try to just be, uh, focus on that. And then once you kind of have the customer in the door, then okay, here are other products. But really, but I, I, I do like that advice in terms of really going deep. Um, So uh, uh I want to also talk about a little bit about margins Um, and what, uh, because um, I think, you know, we, we talk about wholesale a lot and, um, you know, I would say probably um, if you're a successful beauty personal care brand, probably like the majority of your sales are going to come through wholesale as opposed to um, online D2C. Uh, so you kind of have to have wholesale kind of baked into um, your margins or really be thinking about that maybe from the beginning. Um, I know I've talked to investors and they say that, you know, uh, there's, there's a couple of brands that they really like that are great, but in terms of their margins, their margins actually aren't nearly as good and actually don't don't make sense for um uh for for wholesale. So they were kind of out. Um how um and it maybe like benchmarks if that's possible in terms of in terms of what the margin kind of and it's really hard also I'll just comment that once you kind of price your product, it's really hard to then increase your price. Um it's easy to to decrease it, but hard to um increase your price if you're doing really well. Um how how should brands think about, you know price and margin that actually makes sense. And so a lot of them typically, um, it seems like the norm starting off D to C and then if they, and then transitioning into wholesale, if, if they decided to go into wholesale. Maybe Odile, we'll, we'll start with one. you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll Kalina, go for it, go for it, go for it. No, I, I mean, I'll, I'll just, you got to price your strategy first and foremost, you know, and we talked about your positioning, your target consumer, your channel. What do you, who do you want to sell to and where? And that has to be, you know, front and center. At the same time, if you are trying to launch a specific formulation that's incredibly unique and has all these juicy ingredients and whatnot, that's going to be quite expensive. So you have to realize that 
that in order to make a good margin, you are going to have to price at a certain level. Does that jive with your channel strategy? So there's, there's so many components to this. I'll say that as an early stage investor, when I see a brand that does not have the right margin profile to take it into wholesale, it's not something that we would commit to because there is so much work that goes into reverse engineering and getting back to that right margin because it will require either changing formulations or as you said, Mike, changing your price. And then it might, might not fit your strategy. And that's just not something that we, um, we would want to do at this early stage. Yeah, when I when I work with uh, first time founders, especially, right, they have a the a proclivity of building the best widget. First of all, sometimes you don't need it to be that good, right? Like you know, but oftentimes margin comes at at that expense. So I often tell founders like this, right or wrong, build your financial model first. I mean, you need it anyways for so many reasons, but like flesh out your your cogs targets and your SRP and play with things. Of course, make sure it matches with your you know, your brand positioning, like Christina mentioned, but like flesh it all out just, just to see how everything looks. Theoretical model, right? Performa. But also um, as a cheat to that, um, and again, anyone disagree with, feel free to disagree with me. I, I, I don't know if this is like a bad habit I picked up along the way in, in product development, but there's this, there's this adage, I guess, where like if your cogs are roughly 10% of your SRP, then that hopefully when you do flesh out your pro forma, your, your PNL, it all kind of like works out for wholesale. I don't know if that's true or not, but in my- like, It'll vary by category, but it's a good target. Yeah. And my, in my, for formula fillers, especially like that's been kind of my little cheat and I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Curious what you guys have to say. <laughs> but I will just add to what has been said, uh, the margin per category, because I have got many times uh, the questions by uh, founders. <laughs> For me, on uh, skincare, if you're under 75%, you're not that good, especially when you will have to share uh, the product margin to have sets and things like that. Again, if one day you have a merger acquisition and a corporation is acquiring your beautiful brand and community, it's uh, for them a virtuous circle. If they purchase a company in the portfolio, they don't want to decrease the product margins average of their portfolio. So you need to be virtuous in the circle. So there were questions in the chat about makeup. Makeup is a tough category because uh, you rarely is, uh, you rarely are above 65%. So 65% and then you will have a lot of cost in merchandising and sampling and things like that. Uh, fragrance is a beautiful category because especially if you've got uh, great products, the other day Christina was giving the example of long lastingness that is super important for Gen Z and, uh, and millennials. If you've got loyal customers and a good margin, it can be even uh, 85%, 80%. So keep that in mind. And hair, hair care is more like uh, skincare. I also want to add one thing. Make sure you you it's clear how you're defining your gross margin because sometimes I think people confuse it with the product margin, which is just like the actual cost of the goods, including freight in, and that needs to be very high because the way you know if you put it fully loaded with your shipping costs, especially if you're a DTC business, shipping could be incredibly expensive, and if you have you know, heavier products like shampoo and conditioner and whatnot. Um, and then your other fulfillment costs, like I look at it fully loaded with all of that, not just the product cost. So you have to keep that in mind. And I guess with that, with that 10% kind of, uh, Vanessa, is that, 
is that fully loaded on, no. on your side or no? Product gross margin. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's in warehouse. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, well, speaking about, you know, um, I know we haven't really covered as, as much on the trend side of things. So we, we kind of have a question um, here on that. Uh, what are some examples of unmet needs? Is it purely functional or perhaps there's an un, unmet need in branding? I'm thinking about brands like Mod, where the product itself is not particularly re revolutionary. Sorry, a little, a little. Um, a, I guess you're a little bit on the hot sheet there, Christina, since you're an investor in Mod. But um, how do you how do you all think about this in terms of um, like unmet needs per se? I would say there is one that is emotional and one that is rational. Coming back to what has been said before. Emotional, it's the brand and the community. Rational, you need to fix a problem, whether acne, curly hair, uh, dark skin, whatever. <laughs> but you need to be good at fixing the problem. Yeah, I mean, and just use the mod example. I mean, for there was an explosion of sexual wellness brands and we looked at many of them and mod was the only one that was trying to do something different in terms of they're trying to approach not just sexual wellness, but modern intimacy and what that means and how that could apply to multiple different categories in a way that's never really been done before. And they do that with the elevated product and the brand experience and the articulation of the brand across all of its channels is very cohesive. Um, and they make it, they make it, you know, okay to talk about some of these taboo topics in addition to having really good product, maybe not groundbreaking in terms of never been done before, but their approach is very unique. Um, so that's, that's what interested us on that one. And, you know, we're, we're huge fans of it. Cool. Um, I don't know if Vanessa, you, 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 you have anything to add as yeah, well. Nothing to add. I mean, maybe, okay. Maybe just to say like earlier when we were talking about how sometimes it's, it's a packaging of some elements and being among the first to occupy that space, you know, among the first, um, you know, that's, that's, you know, very intriguing. Um, so, so yeah, I'd say mod is that. Cool. Cool. This is great. Um, I think that I'm just trying to think, I think that we got most of these questions and I think that, um, I know that we're almost out of time here. Um, but we have this one question here from Henry too, uh, that, that maybe we can, um, going back to our earlier conversation about, um, about, uh, I guess science and, um, uh, science-led brands. Um, you're mentioning the, the, the science ingredient-led importance for beauty brands. In this light, are we going to see a shift from influencer marketing and instead see brands using subject matter experts as brand advocates for credibility purposes, i.e. dermatologists being leveraged for skincare products? Um, I guess, will there be a bit of a shift when it comes to who is the actual right, um, you know, um, uh, um, influencer or maybe person that's, that's maybe promoting um, point your brand itself, are, are brands going to be thinking about a different type of profile? Um, maybe, um, Vanessa, we'll start with you on this. Yeah, good question. I mean, I'm still, I'm still thinking through my answer, but ultimately I, I think it doesn't really matter who that person of authority or credibility is. It just has to be authentic to the brand. Um, and I know that that's a very commonly used and very vague term still, but I think that's just more important. It has to be kind of organic. Um, yeah, I don't know if anyone has any other thoughts. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'd be, I think I also, you've seen an explosion of, uh, you think you have seen an explosion of, of Derm focused brands and you had a prior wave probably 10 or 15 years ago. And now you see it really uh, through social media in particular and, and Derm talk and all of that has really um, allowed dermatologists to become influencers, to become celebrities in their own right. And to be able to share information on a broader platform outside of just their um, offices. The question for me is always, you may have the credibility, you may have the, you know, fancy, you know, office, derm office in LA, the product piece, why you went into um, developing this product, what is unique about this product? And can you actually build a brand around it, whether it's eponymous or not? And where could you distribute this? You still have to answer all those questions for me. The hurdle doesn't come down because, you know, you have the credibility of having kind of a medical background. You still have to be able to, you know, build something that goes beyond the derm person, that, that person itself. Just adding to that, I know we are running out of time and we didn't have time to cover metrics, but retention rate, if you're at 40%, you're the winner. If you're at 30%, you're good. Under, you need to improve and focus again on your iconic products. Uh, no, this is great. Um, uh, this is uh, this is terrific. Um, I would just I would just comment on this question. Like, I also I don't think that it's also like an either or either. Like like you can maybe have um, uh, you know, um, a, a, a someone who is big in in uh, a big dermatologist, for example, be an influencer, but you could also also if you wanted to have more of a traditional influencer as well, uh, be part of it. Like, I don't think it's like an either, either or scenario uh, when it comes to who actually um, you want to be like your advocate for the brand. I think to uh, Vanessa and uh, Christina's point, like it, it just needs to be very authentic and actually make sense in terms of why you actually have those people um, as part of your brands and really actually um, love your brand. Um, and I think the tie back so. to what Christina and Odile said earlier, it comes also down to community. Like ultimately you're trying to build a community so whoever, you know, it could even be like a community leader micro, you know, within that world. So it's, you know, I think it's more about the community and you're building and and if it makes sense to leverage these other, you know, third party credibility um, people as, as part of that community building, you know, I think that's really where it works. Thank you for all the questions. I'm super impressed by uh, the engagement of the audience. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, this is incredible. Um, I, sorry, I don't think that, we we didn't cover the last ones about IPOs and um yeah more more things about IPOs but um um honestly we're, we're out of time unfortunately um this is we'll have to do it again um honestly this was so much fun um uh Odile Vanessa Christina thank you again so much for your time this is thank you this is awesome thank, thank you. you thanks for having me it was a pleasure and uh ladies I'll see you soon on my my interview in Austin uh, at the South by Southwest. Let's Thanks. do it. That sounds great. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. everyone. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this webinar and want to hear it again or replay a part that you missed, you can find recasts of all of our webinars and podcasts on our YouTube channel and on our website. Be sure to like and subscribe to get alerts whenever there's new content available.